of, the, of this section on all these different organisms is hopefully you're understanding why organisms are placed into different groups. What are the unique characteristics that make something a fungus, for instance, rather than a plant, or make it a, a, an animal and decide which of the groups of animals it fits in? Okay, so that's what we're going to look at first. What are the basic characteristics that we use? Okay, so we know that we start off with a multicellular organism. Right? Now, the first characteristic that we look at is whether or not they have true tissues. Now, a tissue, you take anatomy, they'll define a tissue as a, a group of cells that usually have are similar in appearance, and they work together to do a common function. So in other words, muscle tissues, a bunch of cells get together and then you can, they can shorten and make you, allow you to move and things like that. Uh, that's a, a tissue. One group of animals does not have that type of organization. It, it's made up, it's clearly multicellular, but, and there, there's a little bit of specialization in the cells, but the cells really don't function very much as, as, uh, as a group. And, and so we say that they do not have true tissues, and that would be the sponges. And we'll come back through and look at each of these groups uh, in a little more detail. Uh, the sponges are very relatively disorganized animals uh, in terms of the, the connections between their cells. And, and in fact, there are uh, some sponges, uh, we'll look at some later, that you can actually, they're small sponges, but you can uh, take them in a bucket of seawater, put cheesecloth over it, and you can take the sponges and push them through the cloth down into the bucket of seawater, and they reassemble down in the seawater back into a sponge again. You're not going to be able to do that, okay? If we push you through something like that, you're, well, it's just done. Right. These are, that's because these have not that level of, of structural integration that we do. All right, so that's the first divide, division point. Do these guys have tissues or not? And as you can see, most of them do, uh, but there are no true tissues that you're a sponge. Okay? And we'll look at the, the actual names. So, from the next dividing point here is symmetry. Symmetry has to do with cutting something in half and having a mirror image on either side. Okay, then there's two basic kinds of symmetry in the animal world. Okay, uh, okay symmetry. We have radial and bilateral symmetry. Radial means uh, that something is round, basically round with its, uh, and uh, if you cut it in half, well, I can do that in lots of ways. It's like a pie. I can cut a pie in half. I can cut it in any direction. I get mirror images, okay? And there's one group of, one phylum of animals uh, that have radial symmetry. There are the cnidaria. This would be things like jellyfish and that. Uh, and so that's our next thing that we use to divide the groups, is symmetry. We'll go back to this. So we're looking here at uh, symmetry. So if you're radial symmetry, you're a cnidarian. And we'll look at that group in a little more detail. Um, the other option is, like us, uh, we can cut you 
right down the middle here, and we get roughly mirror image. You get a you know a nostril on each side, an eye on each side, an arm hanging out on each side, roughly a, a, a mirror image. But there's only one way we can do that, and that's right down the middle. We call that a mid-sagittal section. It's the only way we can divide most animals into mirror images. And, and the difference really is that um, all of these uh, animals that have bilateral symmetry uh, have uh, their sense organs concentrated at one end, and they generally are, uh, move more in a much more organized fashion. Jellyfish can move, but uh, they're not strong swimmers. Okay, they drift as much as they move, and so they have to be aware of their environment 360 degrees around them at all times. Animals that are actively moving through the environment are mostly focused on what's in front. Okay, because uh, that's the new territory. That's where you need to be concerned. Okay, uh, and so all the other animals have bilateral <coughs> symmetry. Okay, they have this bilateral. You can see the example they use here is a. Well, I don't know if that's supposed to be a crayfish or a lobster. Okay, it's a crayfish. Uh, a lobster would be exactly the same. All right, so, so that's uh, symmetry. Now, with uh, bilateral symmetry comes a function called cephalization. And that means that the, the leading end of the animal has all of the sensory, well, not all, but a concentration of sensory uh, cells. Generally, there's a larger group of nerve cells, which ultimately is what forms a brain. It's always in the front, it's not in the tail, okay? Uh, because all the sense organs, or at least many of them, are close by. Uh, it allows the organism to respond to its environment a lot more effectively, right? All right. So, and then it, over time, these structures became more and more complex, okay? As far as what kinds of sense organs and how, and how the brain developed. And, and yeah, all mammals have this, as he was saying in there, have basically the same structures in their brain. It's just uh, the size of certain parts vary considerably. So cephalization really goes with bilateral symmetry. Generally, you find those two together. Okay, so we had embryonic development right now. Everybody starts off as a single cell, single fertilized egg. It's not optional, okay? It's how we all start. And initially what you get is growth. You get, you start to make lots and lots of cells. And they're all identical. They all have the same genetic information. They all initially look the same. But clearly later on in, uh, in development, that has to change. Some types of cells become specialized in certain ways to do one thing. Other cells become specialized for doing other things. And we end up with cell specialization, one of the things that makes us generally different from the sponges, who have a little bit of that, but not very much. And then uh, as you get the different kinds of cells formed, you get the different body parts formed. Uh, and so we start, as I said, we start off with a zygote, a, basically a fertilized egg. There's a, an egg over there with a swarm of sperm around it. I'll, I'll try to, one of them at least wants to get in, in, in the egg to fertilize it. Once that happens, the rest of them are all pushed away so that there's only one, one sperm that actually 
uh, fertilizes it. And then we get what is called cleavage. And, and cleavage is simply uh, taking that cell, that egg cell, and subdividing it into more and more cells. This stage that you see right there, and you can see that there's, I don't know how many cells, probably 32, maybe 64, it's not a lot of cells. The, this is exactly the same size as that fertilized egg. There's no difference in size. All we've done is taking this very large fertilized egg, the largest cell that we, we produce, and we simply subdivide it. That's why it's called cleavage, because we're, there's, uh, we're just simply subdividing it. So we get a large an increase in the number of cells, no growth in the cells. In fact, the cells each get smaller and smaller as you do that. And this re goes on until you get to about a 16 to 32 cell stage. And at this point, you have a ball of cells. Okay, that are all pretty much the same. All right, well, obviously we've got to do something to differentiate these cells. Something has to tell them what to become because every cell has the same genetic information. Something has to inform that cell, okay, you're going to end up being a skin cell, activate the program, you know, the, the genes that are required for you to, be, you know, start down that pathway. Others are going to become muscle cells, and others are going to become bone, and, and so on. Uh, something has to tell the cell how to get started. And so what the, we have at this point, uh, we, we have this ball of cells, and the next step is they start moving. They literally migrate and form a hollow ball, like a tennis ball, if you want to think of it that way. And that's called a blastula. Now, we're going to look at another thing on here in a minute that talks about having three tissue layers. I'm going to talk about how many tissue layers do we have. Well, as an embryo, you end up with three tissue layers. They're called ectoderm. This forms the nervous system. Skin. Many of the sense organs. We have another tissue called endoderm. This lines the digestive tract. And is participates in some of the digestive organs like the liver and stuff like that. And then we also have a, a third one called mesoderm, which forms everything else. Uh, muscle, okay. uh, bones, etc. In my little ball here, I, I, I don't have three different layers, and I need to create three different layers. That's and all animals that go through an embryonic development stage have to do this. Okay? So the way it starts is that on one side of this, now we're looking at a very simple uh, embryo here. This is not a human embryo. Uh, our our development is a little more complex than this, as are chickens and you know, more uh, higher uh, animals. This is uh, going to be a sea urchin, or the one on the right there, the frog. 
what happens is on one side of that egg, usually opposite the side where the sperm entered it, it starts to, cells start to not just push out to form a ball, they start to move around the outside and dive into the middle. And let me show you a picture. These cells right here, they're moving around the outside and then pushing into the middle. Okay? Forming another structure here. Let me do a diagram. Okay? So this was the this was our outer layer of cells. And now as these cells push into the middle, we now have an outer layer and an inner layer. Ectoderm, endoderm. This is the beginning of the digestive tract. Right here. But cells have to literally move around on the embryo to form this. Okay? And then as you get a little farther along, some of the cells will break free from this and start filling in a little bit here in the middle, and the, the ones that are pink here will form a mesoderm. And then once those three cell layers are formed, you can go on and start to actually produce an organism. All right, so, so why are we going through all this? Well, okay, first of all, ectoderm, endoderm, mesoderm are called germ layers. Now, some organisms have only two germ layers. Diagram here. Put it all the way down. Okay. So we had two different types of symmetry. So here we're looking at the number of tissue layers. Okay, three. Uh, all of these guys have three germ layers. These guys have two. So cnidarians don't have any mesoderm. They only have endoderm and ectoderm. And now we're looking at embryonic development. And what part of that are we interested in? Okay. Well, here's the deal. This process right here, this stage is called a gastrolyme. The process of doing this is called gastrulation. All right, so I've got an opening into my digestive tract right here. Okay, very first opening into the digestive tract. I have options. That opening can be the mouth, and then as this later on forms, we'll make a second opening on the other side which is where the anus is going to be, so that we can get stuff through the <coughs> digestive tract. And these kind of organisms are referred to as protostomes. Stome refers to mouth. The first opening in the embryo becomes the mouth. All right, well, that's one way of doing that. But we can also do it the other way around. That first opening can become the anus, and the mouth can form on the other side. Now, that works just as well. We end up with the same basic thing. And these are called deuterostomes. Second opening becomes the mouth. We're deuterostomes. Okay? And that's the next major uh, division here in our. Uh, let me go back to the way we did this. Uh, protostomes and deuterostomes. Okay, so here we have. The protostomes and all of these organisms over here all go through embryonic development in the same basic pattern, and they're all protostomes. Okay, all those different phyla. So uh, 
everything from the flatworms through the arthropods has that type of embryonic development. Okay? Chordates, which is us, and echinoderms. Everybody looks at that and says, why are starfish always put up right next to us? Well, because we both have deuterostome development. And it's considered that if we both have that same embryonic pattern, that must indicate a relationship, an evolutionary relationship between the two groups. Okay. Uh, and so this is a, a, another thing that then we use to divide these organisms uh, as to where they fit. So the, the point here is there, there's a, a method to the madness. It's not just a, uh, a bunch of stuff and we made up names and said, okay, you guys are going to be this. There is a reason why they're organized the way they are. Okay, okay there is one other thing that, one other uh, term here I'm going to throw in. So this, this goes to the gastro and so on. Uh, protostomes, deuterostomes. Okay, now when we look at our digestive tract, there's actually two types. Deuterostomes and protostomes all have the second one, complete digestive tract. In other words, they've got an opening on either end. But if you go back to the, well, that's a, a well, that's a polyp form of an cnidarian. Basically, a jellyfish is a bell with tentacles hanging down and an opening underneath. You flip that over, put tentacles going up and a whole, an opening in the middle, and you have sea anemones. So it's the same basic structure, just one is like this and the other one's like that. There's not a lot of difference if base, you know, in that. Um, but they have only one opening into their digestive tract. So whatever they eat, after it's digested, the remains have to be pushed back out through the same opening. Now this limits you, because once you've filled that cavity there, you're going to have to give some time for digestion to occur before, and you get rid of the waste before you can refill it. Now, if you've got two openings, one on either end, you can just eat all the time. And the waste just goes out the other end. Much more efficient method. Okay. Now, uh, there's one other group that besides the cnidarians, the flatworms also have only a single opening into their digestive tract. And if they're parasitic flatworms, they often don't even have a digestive tract because if they're living in your intestines, they don't need one. You're doing all the digestion for them. They just absorb the nutrients. It's, you know, it's a pretty comfortable life for them. Um, in these organisms, what we refer to that as a sac-like gut because it's like a bag. Uh, it also generally serves, these organisms generally do not have any circulatory systems, and so the, this, the, the gut is called a gastro, which is the digestive part, vascular cavity. It's also how the nutrients are distributed. Okay. Uh, when you get to those with complete digestive tracts, then they usually have a separate circulatory system. Okay, and then lastly, we have a body cavity. We all know that. I mean, at least we sort of think we know that. We all know that, that uh, 
there's a big hole in here with all your all your insides hanging around in there, all the all the digestive organs and you know the liver and the intestines and you know the stomach. They're all just kind of hanging in this cavity, right? Um, the, the, not all organisms have this. This this cavity is referred to as a coelom. That's how that's pronounced. C o e l o m is pronounced coelom. Now, those with no coelom at all have uh, solid tissue between the digestive tract and the outside. And there's a picture of one up there. There's no opening. There, there's a gut in the middle. There's no cavity between that and the outer. So basically, if you want to be more efficient at extracting nutrients, we have to make the digestive tract longer, which means you have to make the whole animal longer. And obviously, there's a limit. So they have no coelom at all. Flatworms are like that when we look at the flatworms. Both of these uh, have a coelom. They have an opening. This one's got mesoderm on the outside, but not the inside. This is called a pseudocelum, false coelom, just because it's not completely lined with mesoderm. And then for us here, our coelom is completely lined, and we then can suspend all of these organs and let them hang around in there. And that means now your intestine, which is some 23 feet long, your body doesn't have to be 23 feet long in order to accommodate that. We just coil all up in there and stuff it in. Right? And it works, works fine. Um, some animals have issues or troubles with that. Anybody who's been around horses, horses occasionally get their intestinal tract twisted which is a fatal condition. Uh, the only thing they can do, or what they will try to do, is they'll, sometimes they'll do surgery. Um, they can try to manipulate it from the outside. If that doesn't work, they open, uh, they open them up, sterile sheet, start pulling all the intestines out, lay them out, get them all back in order, and then they pack them all back in again. Is that what causes the horses to like try to roll? I think that is part of what now, that, and I, I've heard of that happening to a dog as well. It's not common in smaller animals, uh, but it, it seems to be something that horses are prone to. Uh, and it's a problem if you have, if you have a bunch of horses, you're probably going to run into it. If you've got one horse, you might not have a Horses are expensive to have. Uh, but kind of like boats, you know, some place that you dump all your money and, and it disappears. That's pretty much larger boats, and then they, just a, just a hole in the water that's worth more money, that's pretty much what, what they are. If you have a larger boat, it's expensive just to run them. I mean, let alone maintenance and a place to park it. You, know, uh, you can spend over $100 on fuel just in an afternoon without any problem. Your gas mileage is not very good. Anyway, three types of body cavities. Well, really two kinds of cavities and one with none. Okay? And all of these different uh, characteristics then are part of how animals are grouped. Okay, one last thing is the last thing. Yeah, well, a couple things here. Segmentation. Um, the simpler animals uh, don't, don't have repeating units, but many of the worms. Uh, each of those segments there is really identical to the one before it. They're, they're just, it's kind of like prefab, you just put them together and, and group, you know. 
Uh, and uh, you know, earthworms are like that. You can see the segments on the outside of the worm. We have segments when we were an embryo. You can see them very clearly in early embryos. But then as we get older, those, the, the, the embryo gets older, you can no longer see the fact that there was segmentation. It's very obvious in the muscle, building of the muscle blocks at the beginning. Uh, and so segmentation is a fairly common thing. And then we have uh, two types of development here. We have direct development, and that means that the offspring are born and then they just grow up to be like the adult. Okay, so this poor dog here has got, has been inundated with puppies, okay? Um, probably not enough, probably not enough teaching there for all the puppies. They're probably fighting for them to get, in order to get fed. All right, but when puppies are born, they're just going to grow up to be dogs. We're done. Okay, nothing fancy. There are others that don't do that. We have an indirect development, and this is, let's see, this is mostly in uh, arthropods, but uh, you have the egg, and it grows up to be a larval form, which basically is a feeding organism. And then at some later time, it converts into, it goes into a cocoon and gets changed into the adult form. Okay, and, and that's a, a kind of an indirect type of uh, development. Because while we're going to make a new adult, we have to make a larva first. Now this has some advantages in that the larva usually feeds on something completely different than the adult does, so they, they don't uh, All right, so let's take a look at a few, let me see what time, I got my 15 minutes yet. So we're going to do a quick survey. Okay, sponges. Final name is Porifera. Uh, they're found in well, they're all all in in the water. They're marine or aquatic. You uh, you'll find freshwater sponges. There are saltwater sponges. Majority of them up in salt water, but there are also freshwater. Pretty simple organisms. No symmetry. No tissues. No organs. Well, if you don't have tissues, you can't have organs because organs are groups of tissues that work together to perform a function. Okay, so like your stomach, for instance, has epithelial tissue, and it has muscle tissue, and it has nerve tissue, and it has, you know, connective tissue, and all those tissues are put together to build a stomach which has a particular function. If you don't have tissues, then clearly you can't have organs either, okay? Um, this is a pretty uh, typical shape for these. Uh, some of them are slightly symmetrical here, these small ones. This one up here is clearly not symmetrical at all. Uh, there's, no, there's no way you could divide that in half and get an image. Now, the body of these, you have the inner lining, and then you have an outer layer. And then in the middle, you have a few wandering cells. And most of this is a non-living matrix between the two sides. So then we have uh, two, two, uh, two layers of cells. They don't have any tissues. And now, into here, they will have little uh, either uh, silicon or calcium carbonate, uh, little needle-like things that are there for help support structure. It's thought that they may also be somewhat defensive, particularly the silica ones, uh, to keep something from eating them. Um, the way they get food is they simply filter the water. 
But generally speaking, they bring they have all these little holes, pores, porifera, that's okay. They bring water in through these holes and then they push it all out through here. And these cells here in the middle, called collar cells, are little flagellated cells, and these each of these then absorbs nutrients or particles that are in the water. These are very much like some protestant cells here in the field. Here they're all organized together. And they little flagellating feet to push the water out, and so you get a current of water going in from the sides and then out the top. And these come in a wide variety of, uh, of shapes. Um, but they're filter feeders. There's no mouth, no chewing, no, no, no biting, nothing like that. Reproduction. Um, they can reproduce sexually or asexually. In fact, almost most mammals can do both, or excuse me, animals. Mammals are an exception. Uh, birds do not reproduce asexually either. Some reptiles do. Uh, but in the lower level of animals, uh, asexual reproduction is common. And, and basically, I, I remember watching a, one of the uh, Dirty Jobs shows. He was out with some sponge divers. And what they did is when they, when they, took, when they uh, cut the sponge free, they would leave part of the sponge behind. And that would regrow into a new sponge. So it was a kind of sustainable harvesting approach. Okay. Uh, and so that's called fragmentation. Okay, uh, in many cases, for particularly the simpler sponges, if they fragment, the new fragments can grow into new sponges. Uh, they can uh, bud off to the side, a little thing will bud off to the side and become uh, ultimately a new sponge. Or they can have these, what are called gemmules, which are, when conditions get really poor, they have a protective coating with some cell clumps of cells inside, and then they can kind of wait until conditions improve, and then they can grow into a new sponge. Those are all asexual, because the offspring are all genetically the same as the, uh, as the uh, parent. They also have sex, though, sort of. Uh, <coughs> basically, they just release eggs and sperm into the water. Well, it depends. Some of them, they release only the sperm into the water. And remember, the other, the, all the sponges are filtering, and so some of those sperm will come into, hopefully, into a sponge and find the eggs that are there and, and fertilize them. In, in some places, uh, they may both release both of them into the water um, and just hope they find each other. Um, generally, when that is the way it's done, uh, in fact, even for these, you can see there's clouds of sperm. And generally, what happens is, all the sponges of the same species in an area will do this at the same time. So you get the water literally is cloudy with, with sperm cells. Uh, it, when you don't have a way of making sure the sperm gets to the egg, you've got to make a lot of them. And they just dump them into the water and hope that some of them end up in the right spot. Okay, now the zygote, uh, when it does fertilize, becomes a flagellated larval cell which swims around becomes part of the plankton. It swims around for some time, feeding, uh, and then eventually it will settle uh, uh, onto the, the ocean bottom if, if it finds a suitable habitat. If it never finds one, it simply will die at some point. And that would be the end of that particular one. And then it develops into an adult sponge. 
right, so those are the sponges for infrared. Next group are the cnidarians, and these uh, uh, are radial symmetrical. They have tentacles. They're pretty aggressive uh, uh, predators, most of them. Um, they have uh, pretty simple tissues, no organs. They have an epidermis and a, what's called a gastrodermis, or it's an endodermis. They have really only two tissue layers and a gastrovascular cavity. You have a single cavity that usually goes throughout most of the animal that functions both as for digestion and for distributing the nutrients. So it, it functions for both of those things. And of course, this is this form here that you're used to seeing. Uh, you see them around here in the summer. They're pretty common here in, in, the, in the rivers. Um, sometimes out in the ocean, you will you'll see them as well, not quite as commonly. But I know in the, down at uh, Yorktown Beach, there are times when they're it's pretty thick with these. Uh, they're fortunately fairly small uh, that we, we get here. Um, and uh, this is referred to as the Medusa stage. Uh, basically, it's a floating uh, bell-like shape on top that contains inside the, the gastrovascular cavity with tentacles that hang down, and those tentacles can trap food molecules. Food, uh, and depending on the size of the of these. They can catch small fish uh, uh, if, they, uh, if the fish wanders into those tentacles. Now, the tentacles on these are relatively short. There are uh, jellyfish that have tentacles that can be several feet long. So, this is the Medusa. Here's a simple Medusa structure here. You can see how these are tentacles are quite long. Now, if I take this and kind of turn it upside down, put the tentacles going up, with the mouth here in the middle, up here the mouth is right here at the bottom, uh, I have what's called a polyp. And this is the other stage. This is a particular one here is uh, an organism uh, called hydra. It's a freshwater uh, form. It's a little water flea that it's caught over there, and it'll stuff that down into its into its body cavity and digest it. And so. Nidarians come in, in one or the other of these, and in fact, some of them will alternate between the two forms. Most coral reefs are polyps. They're coral polyps. In that case, the organism builds a calcareous shell around it, uh, which makes up the actual reef. Uh, and then as that, they do that, obviously they're gradually buried under that and die, but new ones will form on top and they will continue build that reef, uh, assuming that conditions are conducive to doing that. Uh, okay, uh, sponges have no nervous system at all that we're aware of. These guys have a nerve net because when something contacts the tentacles, they have to be able to coordinate the movement of those tentacles to pull the food in or pull it up, depending on which one they're going to do. Uh, and so they have nerve cells in the tissue layer it's really not uh, complex enough to really call it a nervous system. So it's referred to as a nerve net. Okay. Uh, it controls the contractile filaments that move the arms. Okay. Now, in between the two la tissue layers is a layer called the mesoglea. It's, it is non-cellular. Okay. So, so, uh, so I have the outer layer here. This is the lining of the gastrovascular cavity, and then this stuff in here is non-cellular material. 
something that they produce that fills that area in. So this gives you another look at a polyp, and then on down below on the Medusa stage. Now, this is how they catch food, uh, and how, and this is what you feel if you've ever been quote stung. Probably not the right word to use, but we don't have another word for it. Uh, all along the tentacles, they have these little cells called nematocysts. And what you have down in here is a little harpoon-like structure. Now remember, these are single cells, so they're tiny. Uh, uh, attached to this coil tether, and there's a trigger here. When something bumps this trigger, this shoots out, and if there's an animal there, it embeds into that animal, and they usually carry a toxin, because what they do if they get a fish is they paralyze the fish, and then they can pull it into the cavity. Now, if you get stung by a jellyfish, what's happened is you've brushed against the tentacles, and the, these things have fired and have gone into your skin. The organism does not need to be alive for this to happen. They can be dead, and you can pick them up, and they can still sting you as long as those cells haven't degenerated. It's a problem uh, on the ocean side. Uh, the kids are running along the beach, and they'll find... Uh, like a Portuguese man of war occasionally, which are very large jellyfish, and they'll think how cool it is, and they want to handle it, and they can get seriously stung by that, if, if, even though it's dead. Okay, it is a definite problem. Portuguese man of war is, uh, they have a big sail on them that sits up above the water, and that, you know, they use the wind to help blow them along. But they have very long tentacles that could be you know, 15 feet long sometimes. Uh, the trail down into the, you know, and that's, and that's how they feed. Now, if you are the polyp form, you have the same thing. You have these nematocysts on your tentacles, and when something brushes up against them, it fires, it paralyzes it, you pull it in. Okay. Yeah, if you live around here and you go to the beach much, you've probably had some jellyfish stains there. It's fairly mild here. Uh, meat tenderizer works to Stop it. Um, people say that you can urinate on it. That's supposed to make it better. I don't think that. That's more of an old wives' tale. Anything else? Uh, but they're, they're they're serious. And um, in we're fortunate here in that there aren't really any of these that are fatal here. But if you go to Australia, there's Australia just is a full of deadly animals of various sorts. I don't know why particularly, but they have a type of jellyfish called a box jelly there. And uh, they have an anti-venom for it, but if you get stung by that and you don't get to medical care within a couple of hours, you will not live. It's just like being bitten by a poisonous snake. It's just as bad, or maybe worse than some. Okay, because we have poisonous snakes around here, but not very often fatal. Not for a healthy adult, anyway. Painful, but okay. So these are cnidarians, jellyfish, uh, and uh, sea anemones. Here's just a look at some of them. Uh, this is uh, a uh, one here. This is a, a type of sea uh, anemone. This is the ring of tentacles. This is the body here. 
Uh, I had shown you a picture, and then here's a column. Here's the Medusa version. And what's Here's just a, a look at some of the different types. Uh, uh, th these are obviously juiciform. This is a polyp. This is a coral area. Each of these is an individual polyp. Okay. Uh, corals are pretty interesting because uh, they uh, different species of corals actually fight with each other for space. They will actually reach out with their tentacles and try to kill the neighbor if it's a different species, uh, or they secrete chemicals. Uh, there are some videos about that. You can watch them uh, actually uh, invade the neighboring territory and try to, you know, because on the reefs there's only so much space. And so they don't want their space encroached upon by another species if they can avoid it. Uh, here's a, a, you can see uh, how big uh, the uh, a jellyfish can get to be. You get the size here with the diver. Uh, you get some more down here. This one? Uh, it doesn't, doesn't tell me what, it wouldn't tell me what it is. Uh, is there a Portuguese man of war on here? And then we get into the fancy ones up here. Let's uh, do that one. Okay, this is what they look like. They see they have this big sail sits up above. These are the, uh, uh, the tentacles. Here's one that's washed up on the beach. These tentacles are probably still capable of stinging. Uh, so you have to be careful of that. This is what this, here's an example of what the stings can do. Or the, the tentacles, so you know, you know, this is an adult. You can imagine what would happen to a small child. This is not something you want to get into. Uh, so it's, these things uh, are, are, can be somewhat dangerous. Okay, so we'll stop there, and then we'll continue on with the flatworms. Get start getting into parasites uh, next class, and I, I should have your exams ready.